0: In chapter six of his work, Tragic Sense of Life, Miguel de Unamuno is going to invoke what he calls passionate doubt. And you could also call this existential doubt as well as a sort of comportment. But passionate is nice because although he doesn't actually bring up too many of the passions in that particular section, he does continually throughout the work and the passions or the emotions, the affectivity and the will the heart as he calls it in other places are going to be involved in the sort of doubt that he is talking about and he differentiates it or distinguishes it early on in that chapter from cartesian doubt and cartesian doubt could be a stand-in for all sorts of other things he's going to target descartes but we could just as easily talk about humean skepticism and the, the sort of doubt that that goes along with that which hume thinks we can't actually bring out into the real world by the way we leave it behind when we enter the billiard room it could be the doubt of so many other people it could be anything which is a largely intellectual a theoretical a uncommitted sort of doubt one which does not actually provoke any feelings or require any interestingly commitments On our part, it's a doubt that can be reduced, as he says, to a method, which is what Descartes does. And what so many other people employing doubt in that way do. It involves a kind of suspension of belief or assent, a bracketing, if you like. Right. And as he says there, it has little vitalizing force. What does that mean? It means that it really doesn't have much of an effect within our life. It has little to offer us other than intellectual stimulation and perhaps, uh, you know, some usefulness as a methodological tool. So what can we distinguish from this, you know, overly rationalist kind of doubting? Well, passionate doubt, he says, and he begins the chapter by saying that the vital longing for human immortality, which is what the whole book is centering around, right? And it's not just human immortality in the sense of, am I going to go to heaven or go to hell or something like that? It's, is there a point to life? Is all of this just going to disappear into nothingness, myself included, but also the entire cosmos? Or is there anything that's actually going to be preserved and can we know this can we know it one way or the other or are we stuck in a sort of vacillating between the two of them never really knowing but still having to make decisions that's the case that he thinks that we're in so he says this vital longing for human immortality finds no consolation in reason reason leaves us without incentive or consolation in life and life itself without real finality but here in the depths of the abyss the despair of the heart and of the will and the skepticism of reason, meet face-to-face and embrace like brothers. Now, isn't that a wonderful phrase? Both the side of rationality, the intellect, reason, carried through not just in the individual, but in entire programs and traditions, we might say. That entire side ultimately leads us to, well, doesn't seem like there is anything that's going to survive. And even reason itself is rather a contingent development. This sounds a little bit like Nietzsche at this point, right? And also the despair of the heart and of the will. Both of those meet in this passionate doubt. He says, skepticism, uncertainty, the position to which reason by practicing its analysis upon itself, upon its own validity, at last arrives. That is the foundation upon which the heart's despair must build up its hope. So hope and doubt are going to go, in some respect, hand in hand. You hope precisely because you don't know, right? So this passion of doubt is going to be quite different. A little bit later on, he talks about it as being raised by eternal conflicts. He says that this is the skepticism, the incertitude that he's talking about here. This other doubt is a passionate doubt. It is the eternal conflict between reason and feeling, science and life, logic and biotic biotic coming from the word for life a certain structure that life itself requires and this is you know an eternal challenge for philosophers to make sense of it's very easy to like go on the side of reason and then exclude everything that doesn't fit into that that's sort of like the metaphor of the person who's looking for his car keys and you know his friend says well have you found them?" and he's "I'm, i'm searching under this uh street light here and the friend says is that where you lost your car keys and the guy says no i actually lost them over there but the light is so much better over here (laughs) that's a terrible way to look for anything isn't it it restricts you to where you're not going to find what you're actually seeking so he says science destroys the concept of personality by reducing it to a complex and continual flux from moment to moment and this doubt cannot avail itself as he's going to say of any provisional ethic what does he mean by a provisional ethic well he has in mind here descartes again descartes he says was a little bit inconsistent in that he claimed to doubt everything but He did have a provisional ethic, which he describes in part three of the discourse. He says that Descartes was saying, As it's not enough before beginning to rebuild one's dwelling house to pull it down and furnish materials and architects or study architecture oneself, it's also necessary to be provided with some other wherein to lodge conveniently while the work is in progress. He framed for himself a provisional ethic the first law of which was to observe the customs of his country and keep always the religion which, by the grace of God, he'd been instructed by infancy, governing himself in all things according to a most moderate opinions. And that's certainly something one can do. One can say, well, we're going to intellectually doubt things and then we'll have our world of practice over here. And of course, we need to keep like paying our taxes and being good neighbors and filling in all the forms and doing all the things that we're supposed to do, even though intellectually we can doubt all of this, we can say maybe none of this even exists. There's a disconnect there, isn't there? Unamuno says, no, no, we can't have a provisional ethics like that. Why? Because reason is going to tear that down as well. And it really is not going to appeal that well to the heart. What do we need to have then? He says, we have to found our ethic on the conflict Now that's a a very interesting phrase, isn't it? He says, it has to found its ethic on the conflict, an ethic of battle, and it has to serve as the foundation of religion. It inhabits a house which is continually being demolished and which it continually has to rebuild without ceasing the will, the will never to die, the spirit of unsubmissiveness to death. It labors to build up the house of life and without ceasing the keen blasts and stormy assaults of reason beat it down. So what's going on there? It sounds like he's taking the side against reason, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But what would an ethic of this battle consist in? So he's talking about the need to continually rebuild. We could call this an ethic of perseverance, an ethic of going back at it, even though we encounter failures, even though we encounter setbacks. We keep on trying to build something that we can dwell in as human beings. That's an important part of it. Another important part would be trying to find, if not necessarily a balance or lines of demarcation between rationality and everything else, trying to do justice to these within ourselves. It's sort of like listening to squabbling people, all of whom are talking at the same time, and trying to meet their needs or address the complaints that they're making against each other. It's going to be an imperfect thing. It's going to be a continual synthesis that we're carrying out. Now, we can ask, is this going to be an outright rejection of reason, rationality, science, all the intellectual side. And it sounds at first as if he is endorsing something like that, right? He says that the concrete vital problem that concerns us, reason has no position whatsoever. In truth, it does something worse than deny the immortality of the soul for that would be at least one solution. It refuses even to recognize the problem as our vital desire presents it to us. In the rational and logical sense of the term problem, there is no such problem. It falls outside of reason. And since it falls outside of reason, reason doesn't really care about it. And then he appeals to Kierkegaard. And this may, in fact, make you think, oh, yeah, this is going to be quite irrationalist, especially since he brings up how Kierkegaard is engaging in intense passion, bitter invective against Hegel, prototype of the rationalist. Now, interestingly, Unamuno says at that point, when he says, what bitter invective, that is to say truth. (laughs) So he, he really does seem to be endorsing that. He says, though, I doubt whether our brother Kierkegaard is altogether in the right. For this same abstract thinker or thinker of abstractions thinks in order he may exist or he may not cease to exist or thinks perhaps in order that he will forget he will have to cease to exist. And this is the root of the passion for abstract thought. Now, this is an interesting point as well. So abstract thought, reason, has its own passions that it's driven by. It's not entirely disinterested, objective, or anything like that. There are deeper roots. And this is a common existentialist position as well. A little bit later on we see a little bit of balance being restored. Although it's not really balance, it's not even equilibrium. He says that faith, life, and reason have mutual need of each other. We can't get away from them. He says, this vital longing is not properly a problem. It cannot assume a logical status, cannot be formulated in propositions susceptible of rational discussion. So that sounds pretty bad at that point. But we can feel it. Again, passionate, Out, we can feel it. He says it announces itself in us as hunger announces itself. Do you ever, like you know, think to yourself, I, I I wonder if I'm hungry. I should consult my body to find out. Mm, Okay, there we go. Oh, my body says that I'm at exactly 47 percent capacity, and I should probably eat some some sugars and carbohydrates and you know, hopefully some proteins to have longer. No, that's not how your body works. You feel hungry. You might take stimulants so that you don't feel hungry, like certain kinds of amphetamines. You know, caffeine is an appetite suppressant. But, you know, in general, your body is going to tell you if you're hungry. If you're real sick, maybe you're not hungry as well. But we get to know that we're hungry by suddenly feeling hungry. Sometimes it it creeps up and it reaches a certain threshold and now we suddenly feel it. That's the same thing with so many of our other passions or our desires or our aversions, isn't it? We're in a place and suddenly we realize that things stink and we need to get the hell out of there. Or we're with a person and suddenly our hairs stand up on end and we're like, this person's sketchy, right? Those are the sorts of things that we feel. And so he says, Neither can the wolf that throws itself with the fury and hunger upon its prey or with the fury of instinct upon the she-wolf enunciate its impulse rationally as a logical problem. Reason and faith are two enemies, neither of which can maintain itself without the other. Isn't that an interesting twist, right? Reason and faith are two enemies, neither of which can endure the other, put up with the other. No, neither of which can maintain itself without the other. The irrational, he says, demands to be rationalized and reason can only operate on the irrational. They are compelled to seek out mutual support and association, but association in struggle for struggle is a mode of association. If we want to use sort of old TV things, we could say that they're the odd couple, right? They're perpetually at odds, and yet they have to live together and find some sort of modus vivendi that will allow them not to strangle each other or throw each other out of the windows of their nice penthouse apartment. I don't remember exactly where the odd couple were. It was someplace pretty nice in in New York City. So these things have need for each other. And he goes on and he says something really interesting. And this is good to keep in mind. He talks here about traditions. When we're thinking, we are not just thinking by ourselves as purely isolated individual human beings. Like it or not, we are thinking with all sorts of things that have come to us from other people. In this case, we're thinking through Unamuno. If you read his book, you find he's referring to all these other thinkers and writers and other historical people because they've made some sort of impact. So we can talk about traditions, and he tells us that a purely rationalist tradition is as impossible as a tradition purely religious. Now, you could say, well, that leaves a lot open. Maybe they're both possible. Maybe, Maybe he's saying that neither one is impossible. No, he's actually saying both of them are impossible. You never, ever, ever get something that is purely rationalist. You never get something that is purely religious or non-rationalist. They're always mixed in together. This also goes for philosophical movements like empiricism and rationalism, right? If you look at Descartes, as Gilson has pointed out in a work, there's so much that he's actually borrowing from previous thinkers, some of which is arguably empiricist. If you look at Locke, there's all this rationalism in him. People who say that they're pure idealists or pure materialists, he is another opposition. Neither one is entirely pure when it comes to these traditions. So no more than the individual completely falls on one side or the other. However, much hypertrophism may happen on one part of them. That doesn't happen in traditions of thought or movements or schools or approaches either. As he points out, it's frequently disputed whether the Reformation was born as the child of the Renaissance or as a protest against it. And he says both are true. The son is always born as a protest against the father. Right? And he gives you some arguments about that. The other thing that he says that's particularly relevant to this this passionate doubt is he says that every position of permanent agreement or harmony between reason and life, between philosophy and religion becomes impossible. And the tragic history of human thought is simply the history of a struggle between reason and life. Reason bent on rationalizing life and forcing it to submit to the inevitable, to mortality. Life bent on vitalizing reason, forcing it to serve as a support for its own vital desires. This is the history of philosophy inseparable from the history of religion. So this is an important point here there's two things really going on there. He's saying, listen, you're always going to have an admixture of these two, and they're always going to be in some conflict. Notice what he says here. Let's be really careful about the terminology. Every position of permanent agreement or harmony between these two polarities, let's call them, permanent. There is no permanent harmonizing these things. It always breaks down. Whether in the individual or within the movement or school or tradition of thought, You can't really have a permanent agreement. You also can't have lines of demarcation that say theology, faith, you be on this side, philosophy, science, you'll be on this side. And then there'll be this nice border. You can say, well, who drew the border, right? And the border is always continually being crossed. And so we can't get away from these mixtures. You're not going to have a harmony. You're not going to have even just an entire all the time conflict there's going to be collaborations between them and this is going to happen in us and this is going to mean that we are still within a position of doubt is it just purely intellectual doubt or is it passionate doubt does it involve us in our commitments of the will in our feelings our sentiments which could be anguish which could be sorrow which could be exultation which could be the entire panoply of our affectivities Doubt itself can be understood as something that is a sort of passion as well, gnawing continually at us. Unamuno thinks that this is something that we should embrace, that we should view as an integral part of the tragic sense of life. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible.